When I was a kid, there were certain stories I enjoyed reading or hearing taught in the Bible, primarily because of the action, the adventure. I felt like I was being transported back in time to a day where, where giants roamed the earth, to a day where there were witches and sorcerers, to a day where, where mighty men of God did battle with the forces of darkness, a, a day where the supernatural took place. But as I began to grow up, I began to wonder whether those stories really had any relevance to my life today. I mean, even though they were fun to read and even though they would make for great movies, were they really practical? Did they really have anything to teach me today for the day I live in, for the culture I live in? And then as I continued to grow, especially in my relationship with God, I was reminded that all Scripture is relevant because the truths that it teach are timeless. And whenever the Bible teaches us something about something that someone went through back then, most often we still go through that today. And that's very true when it comes to the passage we're going to look at today as we wrap up our series in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. And as you do, I just want to share with you that, that we're going to do something we don't normally do. We're going to read through an entire chapter of the Bible, 35 verses. But I believe it's important for us to read through this entire chapter from beginning to end because I don't want you to miss anything that God says here. Now let me remind you, as we read what's going on in chapter 32, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He has been there for 40 days. He is receiving instructions from God, the tablets of God, and the directions for how to make the tabernacle. The people of God had already made a commitment to keep the covenant that God had given them, the Ten Commandments and, and all the other covenants. They did that in chapter 24. And then right after that, Moses went back up the mountain. God was writing with his own finger on tablets of stone the commandments. God was giving to Moses instructions for building the tabernacle and everything in it. Now remember, the tabernacle was the place where God would dwell with his people. Now some of us have this idea today that, that the church building is the tabernacle of the Old Testament, and that's not true. The New Testament teaches us that the tabernacle of the Old Testament, the temple of the Old Testament, is actually every single New Testament believer. If you have been born again, the Bible tells us that you are the tabernacle of God. You are the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in you. And so here's Moses. He's up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving these commandments. He's receiving these instructions. But the people of God become restless. It's only been 40 days, but the people are getting anxious and they're forgetting the things that God has said. So that's where I want us to pick up in chapter 32, verse 1. Listen to what it says. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. Now underline that phrase. Make us some gods who can lead us. 
We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Moses said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. Now underline that phrase, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives, sons and daughters. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they explained, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, underline that phrase. These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. Now, circle that word, Lord. Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain, your people. Now, underline that phrase, your people. Your people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I've seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them. I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Moses tried to pacify the Lord. He interceded to the Lord. Oh, Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants, and so they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Talk about the power of prayer and intercession. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. These tablets were God's work. The, the words on them were written by God himself. Verse, or chapter 31 tells us they were written by the finger of God. When Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. Moses replied, no, it's, it's not the shout of victory nor the welling of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration, a party. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into the powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. I want you to underline that phrase, forced the people to drink it. Finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such a terrible sin upon them? Underline that phrase, terrible sin, or maybe in your translation it says great sin. 
Don't get so upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire and, and out came the calf. You parents understand how Moses must have felt. I mean, if you've got young kids, you know there have been times when, you know, you, you and your spouse, y'all been in the room, y'all having fun in a deep conversation, you hear this crash, a lamp's broken or something like that, and you go into the other room, and I mean, the, the room's demolished. And, and you go, what happened? And your kid says, I don't know, it just fell. Simply threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. Now, you need to hold on to that. Because, you see, the Bible is teaching there that the enemies of God's people were all around them, and they were observing what was going on. They were afraid to attack because they knew what had happened to the Egyptians. They knew what had happened to every single people who tried to do something to the people of God. And so they weren't going to attack. But they were watching. And as they watched what was going on, they just died laughing at what the people were doing. So we stood at the entrance to the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And, and all the Levites gathered around him. Moses told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each of you, take your sword. Go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. Kill everyone, even your brothers, your friends, and neighbors. The Levites obeyed Moses' command, and about 3,000 people died that day. Some of you have a problem with that. But this is letting us know how serious this sin was. Then Moses told the Levites, today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, for you have obeyed him even though it meant killing your own sons and brothers. Today you have earned a blessing. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin. Circle that phrase again, terrible sin. But I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin. Circle that phrase, terrible sin. Oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves, but now if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. But the Lord replied to Moses, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. In other words, I will blot their name out of the book of life. Now go. Lead the people to the place I tell you about. Look, my angel will lead the way before you. And when I come to call the people to an account, and this lets us know that there's coming a day when God will call people to an account. We will give an account for the choices we have made, for the things that we have done. I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. Then the Lord sent a great plague upon the people because they had worshipped, circle that word worship, they had worshipped the calf Aaron had made. Now what lessons can we learn from this story? I believe there are four lessons that we can learn from this story about the golden calf. Here's the first lesson. Every person struggles with adultery. Write that down. Put it in the margin of your Bible. Etch it into your minds. Every person struggles with idolatry. 
Now, most of us associate idolatry with ancient days, with primitive people, or a select few religions like Hinduism or Buddhism or something like that. If you ever go on one of our mission trips to India, you will see idols and you will see shrines almost everywhere you go. You will see them in temples. You will see them on the streets. You will see them in people's homes. But that's our problem. You see, we only associate idols with shrines and with temples and with carved images. Years ago, back when my children were really young, they were small, my parents went on a cruise to Hawaii and then cruised around the Hawaiian Islands. And, and when they came back, they brought our children a gift. They brought each of our children tiki statues. Now, if you know what a tiki statue is or you don't know, it's a totem pole. And a tiki statue has the face of Polynesian gods on it. It's an idol pole. Now, when my parents left our house, I went into my kids' rooms and I took their tiki statues. I never told my parents. I hope they don't listen to this message this morning. But I took those statues because I didn't want those idols in our house. Now, some of you may think that I went overboard. Some of you think, may think I'm a little ridiculous, but I believe it was the right thing to do. But here's the problem. Even though I took those tiki statues out of our house, we still had idols in our home. Because, you see, we associate idolatry and idols with a carved image when there are many other things that are idols in our life. This passage teaches us some clear truths about adultery. Write these down. They're, they're not on your note sheet. First of all, adultery is when we look at someone, or idolatry is when we look at someone or something to give us what only God can give us. Write that down. Idolatry is when we look for someone or something to give us what only God can give us. Listen to what it says in verse 1. Make us gods who can lead us. They were looking for someone else to do what God had been doing. It was God who led them out of Egypt. It was God who led them through the Red Sea. It was God who led them to Mount Sinai. He was the one who was still leading them with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. But somehow, someway, they had forgotten that the one who had led them was still leading them. And they wanted someone else or something else to come into their life and do what only God could do. They had forgotten that God was the one who could supply their every single need. They had forgotten that God was the one who provided water when they were thirsty in the desert. They forgot that God was the one who provided the quail and the manna in the wilderness when they were hungry. It was God who did everything for them. And now they wanted something else who could meet the needs of their life. What we need to understand is today when we look for someone or something to give us joy or security or peace or meaning or identity or purpose or anything else that only can come from our Creator, we have made that something an idol in our life. I know I've done that. I've done it with relationships. I've done it with my calling. 
I've done it with money. I've done it with a host of other things. I have looked to these things to provide me with something that only God can really give. Whether it's joy or peace or identity or purpose or security or anything else. And the truth of the matter is, all of those things, those idols that we make, can deliver for a time. But there will come a point in our life when the idol will no longer deliver. The joy will be gone. The peace won't be there anymore. The person or the career that gave us our identity leaves or is taken away. And, and all of a sudden, we're looking for another idol. Idols will never fill us with the things that can only come from God. They are idols. And we need to get rid of them. Takes us to the second truth. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it into a God thing. Look at verse 2. Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives, your, your sons, and your daughters. Do you remember where they got the gold from? These people were slaves. They didn't have gold. But when they were leaving Egypt, the Bible says that God gave them favor with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians gave them their gold, their silver, their clothing. God was giving the people gifts. And now they were taking these gifts that came from God and they were giving them to their new lover. Can you imagine? Your spouse, your husband or your wife taking their wedding ring, the ring that they gave you as a symbol of their love for you, taking that to the pawn shop, selling it, so that they could go and get a hotel room for a one-night stand with someone. That's what Israel was doing. God had told the people in, in chapter 25 to take their gold and their silver and their claws and bring it as an offering so that the tabernacle could be built. But there were many of them now who had nothing to give because they had given them to these new gods. How often do we take good things, things that are gifts of God's grace, and we turn these good things into idols, things like sex, Sex is a gift from God. Did you know that? Sex is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. God could have created us where we could create, where we could produce offspring. He could have done that without us having any pleasure whatsoever. God could have, God could have called us to have kids by touching our fingers together. Hey, come here, baby. Let's have a... I mean, God could have done that. God could have made sex painful and awful. I mean, where we'd want to stay away from it, but, but he made it pleasurable. He gave us sex as a gift, and we've taken this gift that has come as a work of God's grace, and we've turned it into a God, and we've polluted it. We do that with so many different things, food and health, material possessions, comfort, things that God has blessed us with, and yet we take them and we elevate them to a place in our life that God never intended them to have. 
And all of a sudden we find ourselves desiring the created thing more than the creator himself. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 1. He said they worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. And finally, idolatry doesn't necessarily mean you abandon God. It can mean you put something alongside God. Did you hear me? Idolatry doesn't necessarily mean that you've abandoned God. It can simply mean that you've put something alongside God. Look at, look at verses 5 and 6. This is what Aaron said. Oh, Israel, these are the gods, plural, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 6, it says, tomorrow we will be, will be a festival to the Lord. Now, don't miss that. These are your gods. He didn't say this is your God. He only made one gold calf, right? And yet, in that one gold calf, he said, these are your gods. What did he mean? Well, if you read the next verse, he said, tomorrow we will have a festival to the Lord. The word gods, in these first few verses, is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's in the plural, gods. But when you get to verse 6 and he says, today we will have a festival to the Lord, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the word that God used to describe himself. Here's what Israel was wanting to do. They were not wanting to abandon God. They didn't want to turn to simply pagan gods. They wanted God, but they wanted another God. They wanted a God that they could control, a God that they could manipulate. They wanted to have their cake, and they wanted to eat it too. They wanted to sit on both sides of the fence, but Jesus said this. He said, no man can serve two masters. God will not let you have anything or anyone on the throne of your life sitting beside him. And boy, it's easy to do that, isn't it? Can I, be, can I be candid with you? Can I be honest? I love this woman right here. I flat out adore her. Well, Sometimes I'm a jerk. I know you could never believe that. Sometimes I'm a jerk. Sometimes uh, I, I don't act that nice, but man, I love her. And I love her so much that there are times, if I'm being honest, I put her before God. And she has become an idol. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. There's a lot of you that are doing that. You do it with your kids. You do it with hobbies. You do that with your career. You do it with your spouse. You do it with a lot of different things. And you're committing idolatry. God will not share his throne with anyone or anything. Look at me. God will not share his throne. And you can sit back and say, no, I love God more. Hey, God knows your heart. Can I, can I tell you how you'll know? 
How are you going to react if you no longer have that something or that someone in your life? How are you going to respond? How are you going to act? That will begin to tell you whether that someone or something is a God in your life, an idol. You better be careful. God had given them ten commandments. They already had broken two of them, even though they agreed to follow them all. And that breaking of those two led to them breaking many others. So they got up the next morning, and they offered sacrifices and burnt offerings. They were worshiping. But then it says that they fell into pagan revelry. They were flat out doing crazy stuff. And what they didn't realize is that they were worshiping demons. Hear me. Every time we let anything or anyone else on the throne of our life, we are inviting demons to have influence in our life. You say, Rocky, I don't believe that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, they offered sacrifices to demons which are not God, to gods they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived, to gods their ancestors had never feared. This is what Paul said to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, what am I trying to say? Am I, am I saying that, that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm, I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You see, this is a serious thing. When we put anyone or anything on the throne of our life other than the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, we are dancing with demons. Verse 7 says they celebrated with feasting, drinking, and indulged in pagan revelry. Verse 25 where Moses saw the people were out of control in my translation. I'm not sure what it says in your translation, but that, that phrase, out of control, is the Hebrew word that means naked. They were dancing around naked. They had gone start craving wild. They were doing all kinds of stupid, sinful, awful things right out there in public. And what were the enemies of God doing? They were on the hill laughing at God's people. That's why the Apostle Paul warned us in Romans 1, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Idolatry inevitably leads to other sins. When we take our eyes off of God and give our hearts to anyone or anything else other than the one true God, we are in danger of doing all kinds of things. That's why Mo Moses called this not once, not twice, but three times a terrible sin. You're saying, Rocky, are you saying that, that some sins are worse than others? Yes. Some sins are worse than others. All sin leads to death, but all sin is not equally bad. Idolatry is a terrible sin. Now, why is it so bad? I believe the reason it's so bad is because it is the root of all sins. We're wanting to enthrone something or someone else on the throne of our life rather than the Creator, the one true God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Satan said, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. They thought, like God? We can be in control? 
we can rule our life? That sounds good. And so they disobeyed God. Paul even warned us not to associate with people who claim to be Christians and yet who are worshiping idols. Later, he told us to flee from the worship of idols. And so hear me. You better take this seriously. You better examine your life and examine your heart. And if there is anything on the throne of your life other than the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, then you better repent of it and get rid of it right now. Notice how this chapter ends. God sends a great plague because they had worshipped the calf. You see, idolatry is always an act of worship. No matter who we are, no matter what our religious background may be, we were created to worship, we're hardwired to worship, and so we will worship something or someone. You're going to worship your kids, you're going to worship your spouse, you're going to worship your career, you're going to worship money, you're going to worship something. And I'm here to tell you, you know in your heart of hearts whether your worship is really to the one true God or not. So everyone, everyone has a problem with idolatry. We're going to have to hustle through here. Second truth, every Christian has your people. Every Christian has your people. Notice what God says to Moses in verse 7 when he sees what the people are doing. Go down the mountain. Your people have corrupted themselves. Have you ever wondered why God said that? I mean, did God say that because he was just ticked off and irritated and he said, I'm done with them? Well, God was angry. And I want you to know that all Scripture is true. And if God had not changed his mind here, and you can debate what that means or what it doesn't mean, but if God had not changed his mind, the people of Israel would have been wiped out. And the reason God changed his mind is because Moses interceded for the people. And so here's God, go down, your people are showing themselves. Everywhere else in Scripture, God calls Israel his people, my people. But here he says, your people. Is it just because God is mad or is there something more here? I believe there's something more. I believe that God is trying to help Moses understand his responsibility to the people of Israel. You see, God had given Moses influence in their lives, and now he needed to accept responsibility for that influence, and he did. He stood in the gap between God and the people of God. He interceded for Israel, begging God to forgive them and give them another chance. He even said later on, God, if you're not going to forgive them, erase my name from the book of life. That's kind of like what Paul said in Romans chapter 9 when he said, I would be willing to be cursed forever if you would save them. And what does that have to do with us? Well, did you know that God has placed people in your life that are your people? People that you are responsible to reach responsible to lead, responsible to intercede for, responsible to share your faith with. When David was writing about this in Psalms 106, verse 23, he said, so God declared he would destroy them. But Moses, his chosen one, stepped between the Lord and the people. He begged him 
to turn from his anger and not destroy them. As Christ followers, we can do one of two things when it comes to our people. The people that God has given us influence over. We can either accept that responsibility for the people in our sphere of influence, or we can shrug it off and make excuses. Moses accepted his responsibility. Aaron shrugged it off. Instead of stepping up and manning up and going, we're not doing this, what did he do? He gave the people exactly what they wanted. And then when Moses confronted him, what did he say? Well, I just threw the goal in and out jumped the golden calf. He refused to accept responsibility. But the Bible makes it clear that if you're a Christ follower, you are responsible for people. You're responsible for your kids. You may be responsible for your neighbors, your coworkers. God has given some of us a little bit of influence. God has given others of us a whole lot of influence. But the people that we have influence over, God is going to hold us responsible for. Did you hear me? The prophet Ezekiel makes that clear. He says that if we don't warn the wicked to turn from their wicked ways and repent, then we are going to be responsible for their blood. There are people that you're responsible for. There are people that you're going to answer to God for. People that God has placed in your life so that you can influence them with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are you doing? How are you doing? Now, can I give you two things that you can do very easily to help influence your people? One, sign up for Bless Every Home. We've been talking about Bless Every Home. Only, only less than 50 people have signed up for Bless Every Home. That's ridiculous. Now, maybe some of you have tried and, you know, your computer illiterate or something like that. But signing up's easy. Go to our webpage. Go to events. Click on Bless Every Home. And then there's a link that says sign up. Click the link. And then just sign up. And, and, and what will happen is you're going to receive a list of five names who are your neighbors to pray for every single day. You can pray for people. And then you can ask yourself, who's your one? If you're a Christ follower, then you should be sharing the gospel of God's grace with people in your sphere of influence. You're going to be accountable. You're going to answer to God. We, we haven't challenged you with winning 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 people to Jesus a year. We've challenged you to win one person a year to Jesus. Who's your one? Every Christian has your people. People that you're responsible for. You're going to give an account to God for. Third truth. Every idol must be destroyed. So Moses got down the mountain, he saw the golden calf and what the people were doing. He immediately destroyed the calf. He burned it, he ground it to powder. Now notice what he didn't do. He didn't tolerate the idol, he destroyed it. Listen very carefully. You don't manage idols, you don't control your idols, you destroy your idols. 
Everywhere you see idols in the Bible, the command is to destroy them. There is only one that deserves your worship, and that is the one true God. He deserves to be the attention, the center of your life. And anything else must be put to death. That's why Jesus said, by the way, anyone who does not hate his mother and father, brother and sister, children, anyone who does not hate them cannot be my disciple. And is Jesus telling us to hate people? No, but he's saying that our commitment and our devotion to Christ is so great that when we look at our devotion to anyone or anything else, that devotion pales in comparison to our devotion to Christ. You get rid of idols. You don't control them. You don't manage them. You destroy them. You deal with them. And by the way, I want you to listen to me. Let's get a little harsh for just a moment. If you don't deal with your idols and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe God will. We, we, we connecting? If you're not willing to deal with your idols, maybe God will deal with them. Your job, your career becomes an idol? God could say, okay, you're unemployed. I'll take that out of the way. Let's get a little more harsh. Your children have become an idol, doing everything for them, whatever they want, getting them in every club, helping them do every hobby. They're number one in your life. And to be honest, they're coming before Jesus. God can take them on home. God can say, okay, I'll remove your idol. Say, that's harsh. God expects us to destroy the idols in our life, to get rid of them, to put them to death. And if we're not willing to do it, if I'm not willing to say that, honey, I love you, but I love Jesus a whole lot more. And I can do without you, but I can't do without Jesus. And it's my love for Jesus that will allow me to get through if there ever comes a time that I don't have you. What he wants me to do is far more important than what you want me to do. We can't just say that. We've got to live it. We've got to act it out. Fourth thing, and we'll close. Every sin has consequences. I want you to notice the progression here in verse 20. They were forced to drink the ground down idol mixed with water. Moses burned the gold calf. He ground up the idol into dust, mixed it with water, and they had to drink it. Some commentators say that this would have been fatal. I don't know. Maybe this was part of the plague that they experienced in the end of the chapter. I do know it wouldn't taste good. We need to understand that, that what we do does come back to haunt us. In verse 28, the Levites killed 3,000 of the men who refused to repent. In verse 35, God brought a great plague on the people that killed many of them. There are consequences to idolatry in our life. But there's also consequences in the next life. Verse 33, God said, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. I will hold them responsible for their sins. 
In other words, I will blot their name out of the book of life. The wages of sin is death. If you're here today and you think that sin isn't a big deal, you think because you've walked down an aisle, you've prayed a little prayer, you've been dunked in a pool of water, you can just sin and you can sleep around and you can get drunk and you can do everything you want to because God's forgiven you, you don't understand the holiness of God. And you don't understand what it means to be born again and be transformed through His Holy Spirit. He changes us. He makes us new. The wages of sin is death. So Moses goes up. And the Bible says that he is seeking to obtain forgiveness for the people. That Hebrew word forgiveness, obtain forgiveness, is the Hebrew word atonement. Moses is seeking to make atonement for the people. Moses can't make atonement. Moses is a good man. He's a godly man. He's a great man. But Moses is a sinful man. Moses, who is a sinner, can't pay for the sins of other people. We need someone else who can make atonement for us. The wages of sin is death. Praise God. The gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life. You see, we can receive forgiveness. We can obtain atonement for our sin, but it's not through anything we do. It's through what Jesus Christ has done. When we humbly acknowledge our sin, we surrender our lives to Him as the Lord of everything. We trust Him to save us and we give Him our life. He makes us new and we discover His grace like never before. So where are you? Here's what I know. Some of us are going to walk out this building today and we're going, man, I could preach it strong today. <laughs> Stepping all over toes. And, and we're going to walk out the door and we're not going to do anything different. We're going to still have our idols and we're going to excuse them. And we're going to call them other things. And we're going to show that we've never been transformed. But there's others of us who are here. And maybe for the first time ever, we've realized, I haven't really surrendered my life to Jesus. I've never given Him my everything. I've been serving other gods. And today, you're ready to take the step. You're ready to... Give your all to Him. You're ready to trust Him completely with your life and your eternity. Then in just a moment, I'm going to encourage you to do that. But there may be others of you who are already Christ followers and you know it. And you know, as we've looked at this passage today and what idolatry is, that you've let idols creep into your life. You've got a choice to make today. You're either going to put them to death, deal with them, or you're going to be walking down a dangerous road. My prayer is that none of us will leave here today without searching our heart and doing what God tells us to do. I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, 
If you're here and you're saying, Rocky, I've never really surrendered my life to Jesus, but I'm ready to do that, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly acknowledging my sin. I've disobeyed you. I've put other gods on the throne of my life. And I've lived that way. I've had all kinds of gods. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth so I could be forgiven. I believe you came to this earth so that I could be set free. Right now, I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to set me free and save me. Make me new. Lord Jesus, I so want you to take control. I want you on the throne of my life. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you and serve you. I know you love me. And it's only your love that gives me hope. So right now, I'm yours. Thank you for hearing my prayer.